Psalm 127. And uh, I came upon the unction, if you will, this psalm earlier this week. I was here in the building and I was praying. And I was praying for all of you. And I sat at the piano. A song that I had written many years ago. Um, and I wrote it with the inspiration of this psalm. And it was about having children. And I have three boys, as you know. My youngest, Joseph, was not born yet. But it's also dedicated to Joseph. I should have played it for you today. We've done that before. And I ended out the words. And maybe we should incorporate it um, into our hymn schedule. Because some of you that were here in those days remember the song. Happy is the man whose children understand the word of the Lord. And um, I entitled the song, you may not know this, because I, I, I'm a very prolific songwriter, maybe you don't know that. I, every 20 years or so I come up with one. So that was number three. Uh, um, 15 years from now I got a doozy coming out. But um, I entitled the song Arrows. And it's about children, because God calls our children arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, why would he say that? Well, why don't we go into the word of God and look into that very thing this morning? And so Solomon writes, Unless the Lord built house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen awake in vain. It is vain early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. O Father, those who are so blessed with the word of God written on their hearts are empowered, Lord, to speak it, even to our enemies, O Lord, without shame and with great power. And we pray you impose that power upon your servant now as I pray the word of God to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. I'm assuming you're probably familiar with this psalm. You've probably come across it a time or two in your lives. And I know if you've been here for the last 26 years, only a few of you have, but some of you have been here for a long time. I've probably preached on this or of this psalm or quoted from it many times. Rare children is a very important subject, if very important occupation for the people of God, one of the most important, maybe the most. And so the Lord, in the psalm, the prophet links the two things together. He linked a house, building an empire, building a church, with having children, which would be building a dynasty. If you look at your family as a dynasty, where the word of the Lord is handed down from one royal king to the other, and I'm not making that up. For you are kings and priests before the Lord, the Apostle Peter told us. And so Solomon wrote, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? Unless the Lord guards me, the watchman stays awake in vain. And he could have gone on. He could have gone to one occupation after the other and said, If you do this without the Lord, you do it in vain. Or if you do that without the Lord, you do that in vain. Which means... Vanity in that sense is, is emptiness. And so this is one of the most well-known verses of God's sovereignty in the Bible. Indeed, we have great liberties in Christ. We all have liberties to do all sorts of things. But if the Lord's not in it, it's all in vain, told by the prophet. And it will come to nothing. If the Lord is not in it, it will come to nothing, even your life. There are so many psalms that talk about and almost seem to celebrate the accomplishments of those who do not know God, but they wither away and die and 
but not the people of God. The things we build, we seek His help in it. We seek His aid, and not only that, friends, He's promised to render it to those who ask. Now, the most striking biblical example of this vain sort of human effort comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Indeed, they were a great civilization in that day. And I have no doubt that the greatest architects among them were involved in the great project. And so they employed every available resource and human expertise at their disposal, save one. And that one is always the most important ingredient in any human effort or enterprise. God's personal approval upon the we set out to accomplish in life, the things we set out to build. We have to remember who we are and then go on about the of becoming what we will be. So what they lacked there on the plains of Shem what they did not even attempt to seek, really the most essential element of success in any human enterprise, and that is the approval and the backing of our Almighty God. I'll give you a more recent example. It would certainly be of a captain of a ship, the captain named Edward John Smith, and he famously said of his ship, the Titanic, even himself couldn't sink her. Now, if you're a little hazy on your seafaring history, or you haven't watched the many movies about the Titanic, it did sink. In fact, have even sunk it to make a point. It occurs to me every time I hear that phrase, God himself couldn't do something. And I sit back waiting for God to do just that. So let's go into the, the poetry of the passage here. Let's remember, a psalm is a poem. Poetry is a wonderful genre of literature, and even the Lord himself realized it for our edification. And this is a psalm, and most of the psalms, as you know, are from David. This one's from Saul. Perhaps you don't know, there is a tradition, a Septuagint tradition, is a 2nd century B.C. translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. into, And in the Septuagint version of the Bible, it was believed that when they gave a reference for the writer of the psalm, in this case Solomon, that they gave another reference of a writer that's, that that yeah. few psalms. If that's the case, and I don't know that it is, then Solomon wrote the next few psalms of ascent up until Psalm 131, where he talks again about David. So I don't know if that's the case, but that was a tradition believed in time. And so Solomon wrote a number of psalms here. And, and what we should also remember is a psalm isn't just a poem. A psalm is a song. You know, I'm a great poetry lover. I think some of you know that. I've committed a lot of poetry to memory over the years. And a lot of the poems that I learned from my father's collection of books and poetry, he was also a memorizer of poetry. Even my grandmother was. He used to recite to me Hiawatha. Do you remember the story of Hiawatha? I know you know it, Susan, but um, Hiawatha was an Indian, but uh, she used to re recite, it's a very long poem by, uh, by Longfellow, and um, she knew long, long sections of it by heart, and, it, and in those days, would teach you those things in school, memorizing poetry was a good thing. Paul Revere's Ride, people used to know that because they read the poem, you understand, that was dedicated to those things, and so I thought of songs that I didn't know were songs because I learned the poetry first. And then I found out people had written songs to these things. And so in a psalm, that's the case. There's a poem, but it's really a lyric to a song. It's a set of lyrics. And there's a notation in this particular psalm that says it's a song of ascents. You can say psalm, if you like, or you can say song. A psalm is a song. And it's a Song of Ascents. Now, what's a song of ascents? You know what ascending is, is going up and descending. It's not a song of descents, but it's a song of ascents. It's, it's, it, we get the picture of climbing 
something. In this case, the reference is to worshipers walking up the temple mount for worship. A song of ascents. They sang their way to the temple. Wonderful celebratory picture in our minds, isn't it? So worshipers or pilgrims going to the temple would sing their way there. And you can imagine children learning Bible verses by singing them. And so when they sang this song, it was to glorify God by a recognition and a celebration of his sovereignty of all, in all things. Have you been fearful to pray to God for something because you know he's sovereign? And you might not like the answer? There's times that I've done that. Those of us who know God celebrate that sometimes difficult fact of theology that his will not thine be done sovereignty if you don't know what that is sovereignty refers to supreme power and authority for instance if a country is a sovereign country it means that they live by their own laws and are not subject to the authority of other states or other governments so the united states for the most part is a sovereign country we've made our own laws and we as a country. Sovereign countries do that. And so in the case with God, sovereignty is a reference to his supreme authority over everything, over the universe, over earthly kings and governors, over all the designs and the outcomes of men. That's what sovereignty means with regard to God. Maybe that's why Benjamin Franklin on the floor of Congress in 1787 in a very famous speech entitled Speech in Convention for Forming a Constitution of the United States. The men were meeting there in 1787 deciding how to become a country. They didn't know how. It hadn't been done. And he stood up. And what's interesting, and let me preface this with a couple of things. We know a lot of our founding fathers were Christians and very strong believers in Christ. And even the ones that weren't had Bible verses and passages committed to memory and taught them to their children and understood the moral law of God was good for society, whether they recognized Christ as God or not. And generally we hear that the two founders that were the most unchristian of the founders were Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. But even they, it seems to me, in their old age, had a great profession of faith, and certainly Franklin does here. In fact, the place I found this passage, which I've read to you on 4th of July, the last, I don't know, a few years, I suppose, it's actually in the Treasury of David by C.H. Spurgeon, because he knew that famously... Um, that uh, Franklin had said this on the floor of Congress, and it's sort of like a commentary on the psalm. And so Franklin got up and preached these words. He's 81 years old now. Good friend in his early days with the first celebrity in the United States, George Whitfield, the great preacher. There were very I think some of you may know that. And he, it seems to me in his old age, he came um, a little closer to God than perhaps some of the antics of his youth. But here's what he said. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without notice, is it probable that an empire can arise without his aid? He was imploring Congress to pray to the God of the Bible for inspiration. And then he said, we in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. If he wasn't a Christian, that's quite a believable testimony for me. But I've often said to you that I, mul I mount this pulpit to preach that I'm glad I don't have to do this job. Do you remember me ever saying that? I get up here some days and, you know, I've done this for 26 years. Just about every Sunday. And I have to tell you, it doesn't get easy. It doesn't get easier. There's always a, a little nervous element about the sacredness of the thing you're hearing and the sacredness of the souls that are hearing it. It's a very serious occupation, and I'm so glad that I don't really have to do it. And why do I say that? Because unless the Lord, 
the sermon, they labor in vain that preach it. And you've heard plenty of those. And I hope fewer here than other places. Either he'll show up and fill his own words with power and demonstrations, or he will not. O Father, be with me in the proclamation of your word, and be with this, your beloved church, I do pray. So we ought to recognize that the word of God is in different forms, genres of literature. Now a genre is a fancy French name for a category or style of artistic endeavor. We call them genres. So the Bible is in several genres of literary composition. There are historical narratives. They are, for the most part, to be read and taken at face value. When you, when you read through the books of the kings, you, you take it at face value. All right? Their literal meaning is literal meaning. They're not fantasies. They're not fables. Historical writing. It's almost akin to journalism, if you will. The books of Genesis and Exodus fall into this category primarily. Indeed, the books of Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles. The word Chronicles means historical writing, right? And they're primarily of the historical sort. And then there are law books. There's several books of law and great long passages of law in the Bible, certainly Deuteronomy and Leviticus, right? contain large sections of judicial law, ceremonial law, moral and civil law. And so it's another type of literature. And then there are even dramatic productions. We don't often think of that, but what I mean to say by that is that books of Scripture are written as plays with speakers and stages. And we think of Job and the Song of Solomon in the regard. It's a format that was really very ancient. Um, the Greeks had very famously ancient plays of Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides. And even the Hebrews followed this pattern to some extent and even put the word of God in format. And so we have uh, dramatic sections of the scriptures. Um, Hebrews also use prophecies. Jesus used parables, which are short stories. They're not to be taken. Literally, but there's a message contained in them or a moral lesson that can be gleaned from the story he tells and the composition he's put together of the people involved in the parable. And you know about parables. There's also, in, uh, in the Hebrew tradition, there's apocalyptic literature, which means revelation from God. And this is exclusively Hebrew genre of literature, which speaks about future events. Men who were seers, who could see things afar off because God had revealed them to them. So there's all these different genres. And books of poetry. And that's what we have before us today. Surely the Proverbs are Hebrew poetry, right? Written in couplets, one or two line, or rather two line poems. And then here in the Psalms, we have this lyrical poem set to music. And they would know the songs very often that, that, that they were set to. And particular that were well known to the ancients are even prescribed at the beginning of the psalm. And generally when Pastor Bill gets up and reads the psalm to us on Sunday morning, he, he incorporates those directions into it. Psalm 4 begins with this direction. It says, to the chief musician. So you can imagine, there's a symphony of musicians. And temple musicians were paid participants of the worship. What's oh, interesting about um, musicians in those days, you had to be a you had to be at least 20 years old. To be a musician, you had to be 30. Isn't that interesting? So the, in other words, the greatest rock tune that came out may not be incorporated into the worship service. You understand. Um, not a lot of Hebrew rock and roll in those days, though, I should tell you. Um, and so it says, to the chief musician with strings. So the psalmist tells them how to sing the song. And what instruments to use? Psalm 22 says, set to the deer of the dawn. In other words, some traditional folk tune that everyone knew. Like when we set a, a song to Danny Boy. Everyone knows the tune because it's a traditional folk tune. Nobody remembers the writer. We have many traditional songs like that. And there's different hymns that can be put to the same words. I remember when I first came into the faith, people used to put to the tune of Amazing Grace the theme from Gilligan's Island. 
I, I won't do it. But, um, but you, could, you know, obviously the deer of the dawn was a song that the Hebrews knew. And they said, oh, when we sing this psalm, it was written to that, it was written to that music. And everyone would. So there must have been a long forgotten popular tune of antiquity that the ancients knew in that case. Like when we sing songs to Danny Boy, as I've said. Note the direction from Psalm 9, which I think is very striking. This psalm is to be sung, it says, and these are the scriptural words, to the tune of death of a son. They actually had a tune of death of the son a thousand years before Jesus died. I just thought that was a, an interesting point of the psalms. So a psalm is a lyric poem. And as a poem, we should understand its meaning. When the psalmist speaks of building, we must know that the house is human effort. Now, you picked up on that, right? You didn't think he meant when you were building a house, because then he, of course, extrapolates about the watchman watching over the city. I'm personally well acquainted not only with the process of building a house, but with the conventions of poetry, as I've told you. And so this is a particularly loved genre of literature for me. It's been my life's joy to study houses and memorizing poetry. So the psalmist employs an economical use of words. In other words, the images that the word projects are far greater than the actual words themselves. Note what Spurgeon says with regard to this. The psalmist does not bid the builder from laboring, nor suggest that watchmen should neglect their duty. He's not saying build and don't watch over the city because it'll all be in vain. Spurgeon goes on, men should um, show their trust in God by doing nothing. That's not what he's saying. And then so Spurgeon writes, nay, he supposes that they will do all that they can do and they're fixing their trust in what they have done and assures them that all creature effort will be in vain unless the creature puts forth his power to second causes effectual. In other words, if you're doing something today, if you choose to do something, that's a second cause. The initial cause is either in the plan of God or it's not. You understand? So the efforts we put in are generally theologically spoken of as being second causes. So build the house, seek the Lord. If you build the preach the sermon, seek the Lord's approval. His uh, presence in the process of it. And so Holy Scripture endorses the order of Cromwell. Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Cromwell was the great Puritan leader of Puritan forces in England against King George um, uh, in the middle 1600s where they actually overthrew the monarchy and became a form of American government at that time. Cromwell was a great um, Christian, a great Puritan leader. And so he very famously said, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Certainly he was a leader that knew his doctrine. Now friends, I've always been involved with form of building or another all my life. And in this case, I don't refer to literal building. I refer to the church. In fact, I refer to this church. And I'll talk somewhat about that and take you through some of the in the uh, in the hour, uh, in the lunch hour afterwards. We founded this church together with several other families in 1995. You know, it occurred to me as I was looking through this, I came to the Lord when I was 29. When I was 39, we founded the church. Um, and the way the Lord prepared me for that, as I look back, I had the business, I was trying to support the family. Karen was home, the kids were being schooled, and uh, you got to have a paycheck. So I was trying to make money, and for months on end, I would see nothing come in. It's very difficult to start a business, and I've told you about that a few times. But during those times, they were really seasons for me of prayer and study. Remember once we were at Mullen Hill and one of the deacons of the church said to me, well, you know, Dan, I, I see you don't have much work. 
what have you been doing lately? And I said, I've, I've seen this as a time of prayer and study. And he said, well, great, because then you can open a series that we're going to have. And he led me right into it. And so uh, they have what they call the layman's lectern, and the layman people of the, of, the, of the church would come up and, um, and teach. In that case, it was on the book of Titus. But so the Lord gave me what I would have thought of in the moment as really a very dark time, an impoverished time. But really, it gave me time to intensify my study in the Word of God. Um, I remember once, I was listening to Ian Murray preach. Great reform preacher, the he was the who was the uh, was the great um, pastor of uh, the Westminster uh, Church in England. And um, he gave the question and answer period. Someone said to Ian Murray, they said to him, "Where did Doctor Lloyd Jones get his biblical knowledge?" Because, see, Dr. Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor. He wasn't a theologian. He didn't go to seminary. The doctor part came from he was a very accomplished surgeon, but he came to the God and dedicated his life to Christ. A very great historian. One of the ones I followed in my early years to get an understanding of church history. And someone said to Ian Murray, it was at the Bible Church, and they said, where did, uh, where did Dr. Uh, Lloyd-Jones get his... And Ian Murray said in his little demure voice, he said, well, it was a little room, 10 by 12, I believe, and Owens and Edwards and Spurgeon were there. He's Australian. Um, And that's what he said. And I sort of had that experience myself. It was just me alone in a little 10 by 12 room with reams of books on the shelves that were unread thus far and... uh, and so that's a scriptural background. And so in 1995, through a circuitous turn of events, we started this. And every decision we made had to do with considering God's revealed will on the subject. Now, I didn't know how to start a church. I hadn't done that. But God sent people who had done that before. And he gave us references from the Baptist that we still adhere to today. And we saw that this is something that societies or people do in the sight of God, and so we took our direction uh, from the ancients of the 1689 Confession. And we adhered to what's called the regulative principle of worship. In other words, we worship by direction of the written word and not by other means. We didn't make it up as we went along. We took direction directly from Scripture. There was things that you're supposed to do in worship, and if something's not meant we don't do it. That's the regulative principle. We didn't just copy what others were doing. String together a list of programs and ministries. And meditatively upon the written word, we took our steps carefully and we trusted in the leading of God and the clear revelation of Scripture. And now, as we know, the church itself is not a building. It's a gathering of people. You are the church. If the walls weren't here, you'd still be the church. If they fall down while I'm preaching. <laughs> Praise you, Lord. It'll still, you'll the church. Always be the church. Um, and so I looked up at the lexicon. Now, you know the word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, right? It's also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament throughout the Old Testament. The word ecclesia was not just a New Testament concept, just putting that out there. So I look up church in the, uh, in the lexicon. And this is what I find. It says, there's, there's no definition for church. It says, see assembly or congregation. So you see, the church is a gathering. It's the assembly of God's people. And the primary function of the church is to proclaim the word of God and to edify the saints. And so under, I look up assembly. Under the word assembly, I find this word ecclesia, this beautiful word, which we get words like ecclesiology or ecclesiastes, Right? So in the building of this church, it's most important to seek God's direction if we desire direction, if we desire God's approval. Look, you can build a lot of things without God's direction, I suppose, but I wouldn't try it with the church. So though the church 
a building, I think we recognize a building is a pretty useful thing. And I've noted that Paul sent epistles somewhere. Where did Paul send, the, where did Paul send his epistles? Obviously, churches had addresses, right? We know that one church in the New Testament was in the home of Philemon, a wealthy man probably with a big home. And for those of us who were here for the 26 years we were gathering and teaching and building our church, we know meeting house and our own address. But you should know that for 18 years we were not endowed with our own place of worship. We rented various places, and many of you were there. Gathering to administer the word and the sacraments and the prayers and the breaking of bread are all that Scripture requires of the church at worship. And he was blessed, and so were we. And we knew his presence was, was with us. We're at liberty to design other ministries, such as Sunday school and evening services, but such things are not required by Scripture, and to some extent are modern inventions. Let me just tell you, the history of Sunday school is not what you think if you haven't looked into this. It was not about religious instruction at all. It came to a philanthropist in England in... Um, uh, the late 1700s, his name was Robert Rakes, and he was a devout Christian, and he was a devout Christian, and he noticed that during that time that most children by the age of 10 were illiterate, were working, uh, you know, in the factories and such things at the time, and they were, but the, but the Sabbath was still a day that that culture revered, and so on Sunday, he went out in the streets and he brought the children into the and they taught them to read, and they taught them basic mathematics. And by 1831, he was educating 1,250,000 children. In other words, Christianity has always been about literacy. Our God revealed his word in literature. So you had to read. And let me tell you, the, the million and a quarter people that Robin, Robert Rakes in by that time was well before the state got the idea of having public schools for children. The church was way ahead of the curve on this. And that's where that all began. Other churches had so-called youth ministries. They had youth pastors. They had youth services. That's worship service that was for the young people only, while adults attended the real service with the real pastor and the real sermon. It was always our purpose to teach the whole family together. That goes right back in to some of our founding documents and mission statements. Mothers and fathers would worship with their children. We welcome the young children to be here until they learn to sit quietly. And we want that. We did that with our children. I remember when Joseph was born, he was particularly whiny the first time Karen got back to Ted Williams' camp with him. And she took Joe and she walked around the building while we preached, because Joe was not able to be in there when he was that little. Maybe you guys remember that. And she says, honey, I'm not going to be able to do this. For, I, I, I really don't want to do I want to go to church. And I said, he'll learn. And eventually, he did. Um, and so we were always involved with that kind of thing, trying to acclimate our children to be here with us. And so we always tried to, as I say, keep the young people with us. We taught them to sit still. In fact, um, Pastor Mike in those days, John's old brother, used to say at the weekly Bible study, which, by the way, we had a lot of kids in those days, and we all came together for the weekly Bible study at Mike's house. I taught it on Thursday nights, I believe. And, um, and Mike would uh, always calm the kids by saying, be quiet and slow. And when we came into church on Sunday morning, he'd say, be silent and still. So we could have a little more activity in the more informal Bible study than in the service. And so what did we provide? Well, we provided a very rare thing for our children. We gave them an attention span. Do you know what that is? That's because you paid attention. A lot of kids today don't have an attention span. That's why they can't learn. We weren't as lucky as kids today. We didn't have ADD and stuff like that. Um, 
Most of our children at the time were homeschooled by their parents then, and others were taught in Christian schools in the classical model. You know, we homeschooled our, our children right up through until 2008 when the economy crashed, and it devastated businesses like mine, and we didn't know what we would do. And Karen said, well, I have to look for a job. And for the first time, even though we've, met, we, we've experienced many or several economic downturns, I finally agreed she could get a job, but we had one problem, and we called it the Joe problem. I didn't want to give my son to the government schools, and we didn't know what to do. She looked around for jobs, and she found one at the Aquidneck Island Christian Academy, where she sat at the front desk there for, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so, and they gave Joseph tuition, and so he was one of our sons that actually learned in a very good and competent Christian school, and the Jukeli kids were there, and the Listenberger children were there, and, and the Levinson, Cynthia's point, don't forget us, Cynthia was there, and uh, of course a lot of the people here we met there, and that was a very sad day when the school couldn't continue for lack of funds, but um, we brought our children up in these strict Christian traditions, you see, and um, well, you look around and judge for yourself, I, I think the Lord blessed it. And so they had biblical instruction built into their daily routines. They learned their theology at the knees of their mothers. And most of our grown children today have been accomplished theologians since their earliest years. Our youngsters, of whom I am personally very proud, know more of the God and Bible than most adults from other traditions. I found that to be true. Now, sometime after we started the church, there was a whole movement in the church in this direction. It was called the Family Integrated Church. Do you remember that term? And they would have conventions all over the country, the Family Integrated Church Convention, and people would go to these conventions. We were a family integrated church, though, before the label was popular, because that's just simply what we saw in the scripture. When Noah went into the ark, his sons and his sons' wives went in with them. There was no generational difference there. And so we required our children to sit with us for that most Christian of Christian activities, which is congregational worship, which included singing, prayer, prayer requests of the congregation, and in to hear a sermon prepared by the shepherd that God gave to them. And so it became easy to see how Solomon goes from building according to God's plan according to the same plan. And those become the two great themes of Psalm 127. One is as essential to the other for humanity to prevail. And so he goes from building to child. Three, he says, be children are a heritage from the Lord. Not just the things you build extraneously there to support the economy and your household and your society, but the children within your household. They are the heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, he says, like arrow in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Do you ever think of your children as weapons, <laughs> as arrows? Well, if you do, think of them as straight arrows, I hope. Um, it's absolutely central to our mission that we raise children in the love and admonition of the Lord, because as Malachi wrote, he seeks offspring. God would have our children be godly. You remember the first great commission? The one before Matthew 28 that goes way back to Genesis, where God said, go forth and multiply and take dominion in the earth. This is indeed the church's first evangelical endeavor. For what is gospel, friends, if it's not a multi-generational gospel. If it can't be handed down to your own children, how will you preach to them in the streets? How is God honored? If our children, the heritage of the Lord, go astray of the God of their parents. No, unless the Lord it is indeed in vain, unless the Lord blesses the young souls of the church, our parenting is in vain. And so Solomon wrote, up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, from it. In those early days of building, 
we had a lot more kids in the church than we have now. I'm going to try to go through it. The Sullivans, your brother had six kids. Tentus has had five, three. Niles has had, had two. Niles had five. I'm sorry. Niles had five. Um, Lally had two. Remember all these? I mean, there was a lot of kids in those days. Those kids grew up, and we're starting to see the families with the younger children be reared again. Karen and I built a nursery in there, so when Calvin gets here, if he needs to be silenced or if he needs to be changed, he can go into the nursery. And, of course, the the nurses, we will not all... um, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Um, <laughs> what's the gospel, friends, if it's not a multi-generational gospel? How's God honored if our children are on our first evangelical endeavor? And so he writes a whole Slowly and with care, the Blessing us again as we're being blessed with new families of young children. And if you're here with your young children, I want you to know we are very you're here, and I hope you'll be made comfortable here. The people of God will make you comfortable here, children here, and grow here as our children did. And we have really, if I may say so, a very good track record. Certainly, all my sons are in the Lord and love the Lord. So are John's sons. I look at John. Russ's children are. Pastor Bill's are. And the Sylvia children grew up. I have some pictures of you guys. When you were all little children. The real test of the Lord's building. The real sign of the Lord. Those former children turned out. We did not follow after every day today that most, if not all, of the children of those early years are walking cause of their parents that their parents took up before them and in some cases even their grandparents and all these children walk for the Lord and worship God whether the church is gathered in their own meeting house or meeting in a rented space they are still all said this very thing long before the concept of church buildings became common according to the grace of God which was given to me a wise calls himself I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ, whom we know through the expression of the written word of God. It was our early creed and our oft-repeated saying that God did not create pastors, God created parents. And our early mission to the parents not to farm out this most essential to other ages. We had and have to this day a great mistrust of government initiatives to train up children. Friends, let me say, that's our mission, training up children. Governments are good at something, but they're not good at raising and training up godly children, and most particularly Christian children. The task has been placed upon a far more ancient tradition or institution, the family. And as I look out over the pews, back to when many men and women were little children, I see a whole quiver of sharp, well-directed arrows. Our kids did not just grow up in the church, friends. They became some of the most well-equipped apologists in the gospel that I have ever seen. And I trust that. Um, all of our children here could tell you the basic doctrines of God and even some of the not-so-basic doctrines of God and do a very thorough teaching on it. We could have copied all the conventions of modern evangelicalism, could have incorporated all the programs, we could have populated the local schools. We didn't do those things. We did not separate them into age categories as the world does. We saw the generation as an enemy of the church and not the friend. Some of you are maybe old enough to remember when the gap, the store, was called the generation gap. But when it went public, they couldn't put that in the uh, newspaper, so they just shortened the name to the gap. Um, They wanted kids. 
I once wrote in some of our founding literature that the generation gap is the world's excuse for youthful, youthful rebellion and the devil's tool to pry them from us. I respect that so many of our evangelical brothers and sisters were, were of the opinion that children being reared in public settings was, for, was a form of evangelism. Remember that? Put your kids in the public school. It's a form of evangelism. I understand the impulse. In fact, I'm a founder of a school. We founded the Mullen Hill Christian Academy back in 1992. And I was the first president of that school that's still here in Lakeville. No, I was always a believer in education and in Christian schools. But and Christians didn't want to take part in those kind of things. I understand the impulse. They actually believed that their children in the help the other children um, Christians. My argument against that premise is a simple one, though, but it's a biblical one. Perhaps we forget that we're at war. War of souls, friends, is the real war. Real wars are fought by real soldiers. Isn't that the Soldiers are trained and skilled and mature and disciplined. And Paul writes about the spiritual battle. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's the work of mature Christians, friends. When I think of the very young in such a contest of wits as the spiritual battle, I can't help but conjure up visions of one of the most ill-conceived campaigns in all of Christian history. Perhaps you heard of the Great Crusades. Have you heard of the Great Crusades? It was an effort on the part of European states under popes to take back the Holy Land from the Muslims, right? That goes back to 10 95 under Pope Urban II. Now, I'm not a student of history who's against the idea of crusades in general. And I can tell you, not all crusades are created equal. I think the first one was good. It was well-conceived. Not only that, the Christians won. But I can tell you that there was one such crusade that was the most uninspired twisting of scriptural motives in all of human history. It was called the Children's Crusade. Have you heard of the Children's Crusade? Going back to the year 1212, a European boy claims to have seen a vision and to have been visited by Jesus Christ. His cause was taken up by a self-proclaimed prophet named Nicholas, I believe, and eventually by the Pope Innocent III at the time. And signs and wonders supposedly followed, and they quickly gained a following of 30,000 little children. We're talking eight and nine years old. And so this boy was conscripted to lead them in a crusade to the Holy Land in an attempt to peaceably convert Muslims to Christianity. So they let these travel off into the universe. And supposedly he had a vision that the Mediterranean Sea was going to part when they got there. Guess what? It didn't part. And every one of the children were captured and abused and sold into slavery. Now, there are different accounts of the actual events, but my conclusions are the same in every case. Never underestimate the intentions of the enemy or overestimate the strength of your own forces. My children, I knew well, they were not ready to cast down spiritual arguments in a public setting where they were vastly outnumbered by people and teachers who would teach them the exact opposite of what they learned at their mother's knee. And by the way, I know that there's financial reasons why people can't do this. I'm telling you the ideal. We don't all reach it, but we do have resources that are, that are available to, to us. And I remember being in that same state of lack where I didn't know what we were going to do insofar as schooling our children. But we were going to take charge of it ourselves, and it was going to revolve heavily around the church and the gifts of the Spirit and the ministries of the church. 
Never call out your children to fight the battles that the Lord gave for you and me to fight. The world has so little to offer young people, and from my observation, they have less and less to offer as the years tick by. What goes on now and passes for education, I must tell you from this pulpit, I would be very, very wary of. A worshiping couple are well integrated into a local church with regular preaching and teaching from the gifted men and women of the the church have all the stuff they need to train up and teach their own kids. And they have one other ingredient. They have the approval of God himself. Our children, friends, God's arrows, will be blessed with the spirit of God or with the spirit of the age, one of the other. And it's always been my opinion that there are two forces that play upon our children. There's peer pressure and there's parental pressure. Guess which one I choose. You know, I used to say, society seems to believe... You know, it's funny, the other day I was talking to a couple who knew the kids when they were, when they were young, and they hadn't seen them for a long time. And the woman remembered Daniel and asked me how Daniel was doing. I said, oh, Daniel is an attorney. And she was aghast because she remembered we homeschooled. How can these things be? And not only that, she's a retired teacher from the public schools. And I said, yeah, you remember we homeschooled, we homeschooled the kids. She knew Daniel probably wasn't going to, she got the idea he wasn't going to stay in the building business. She got that from him, maybe when I wasn't looking or something. But, um, but, she, said, <laughs> but she said that about him. And I said, yes, Daniel was homeschooled through high school, did college online, and then got into, he taught for a couple of years in, a, in the Christian school, and then he got into uh, Suffolk University Law School. And she said, he was homeschooled all that time? She said, is he well socialized? <laughs> she actually said it. I joke about that now. That used to be the thing. How will they know how to get along with people if they're not, if the, six, if the six-year-olds aren't with all the other six-year-olds, and the eight-year-olds aren't with all the other eight-year-olds, and the ten-year-olds aren't with all the other ten-year-olds? It's because they have to get along with everybody. Their older siblings, their younger, their parents, their grandparents, and other people's grandparents. And other busybodies in the church will tell them what to do because, because they think it's their business. And it is. Of course they're socialized. There's two forces, parental and peer. I used to say, the world tells us children, kids are good for kids. Maybe it's the east side of Brockton, but I always thought kids were bad for kids. And adults were good for kids. But that's just me. And so, if these two pressures are out there, and the one who will most affect the child, friends, it's the one he'll spend the most time with. Remember this term, quality time? Quality time is a term invented by parents who don't have time for their kids. Okay, I I remember a time with some friends at at a party, and um, one of the fathers got a great idea. So I'm taking my, my kids to the aquarium tomorrow. And that was my friend Eddie and another friend, uh, Billy, said, yeah, I'll do, uh, that's a great idea. We'll take the kids to the aquarium. And, um, and then afterwards, we'll get, our, we'll get our golf day in. And so they said to me, Danny, now I'd never golfed. I live in a town with four golf courses. One backs up to my house, but I, I don't golf. But anyways, they knew that. And they said, why don't you take your kids with us to the aquarium to see the fish? And um, as they got talking, I realized they were planning less and less time for the aquarium and more and more time for the golf course. And I said to them, no, I, think, I don't think I'm going to take my kids to the aquarium with you guys. And they said, you guys, you've got to get some quality time. And I said, oh, yeah, we, we don't want to see the fish tomorrow. We want to see the birds. And they said, where are you going to see the birds? I said, the town dump. It's a big landfill. There's seagulls all over. love the place. Go there, and we're going to see the birds with the kids and throw the trash. In the old days, you used to throw the trash on the ground, drive away. The, the bulldozer pushed it up. The kids loved it. Truck, he could drive up, four wheel drive up the big trash pile, see people's washer machines and baby diapers. It was an awesome experience for children. I recommend it. But, anyways, but they said, What? And I said, Yeah, I'm going to spend the rest of the day with my kids. It's my day off. This is what I want to do. Quality time, friends. 
Self-esteem is another one. Friends, self-esteem does not build souls, it builds egos. And let me tell you, I would go back to self-esteem if we could get rid of some of these new things that are out there, like critical race theory. That just zaps any concept of self. I, I don't understand how you went from one to the other, but for the last few centuries, last few decades, it was self-esteem, self-esteem, build them up. Friends, self-esteem is something you earn. It isn't something you give, like you give to the kid that lost the soccer game, he still gets to win. That doesn't build anything. Self-esteem does not build souls, it builds egos. Christ-esteem builds and nourishes the soul with a blend of spiritual strength and godly humility. And so far as modern psychology plays a part in the rearing of young people, it's an ever-evolving petri dish of experimental programs. They just keep trying new things. Remember they tried to teach children to read without phonics? Remember whole language? You didn't know that B was B. Just had a, you just had a ball, a picture of a ball, and a ball next to it, and your brain was like it was Chinese, and the symbol. You never really knew how to pronounce a word. They did that for a while. I think that's long gone, right? It couldn't have worked. And they wonder why they graduate a million kids every year who are actually illiterate. And so psychology, I always told young people, young couples, get the biggest psychology book you can and when your children don't act right, hit them with it. <laughs> Which brings another godly method of sharpening arrows. Let me tell you something. Spanking is not abuse, friends. It's love. And kids recognize it as such. Let's get over our little wimpy views about our kids can't take it. They can. They'd rather be corralled in another's strong embrace. They'd rather be restricted in certain areas. Learn quickly that it's love. Another godly method of sharpening arrows, Solomon wrote, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 13, 24. Friends, kids aren't stupid. <laughs> they know love when they feel it. They know that love is the brother of authority. Friends, Christ loves you more than anyone could, but he's always the authority. The two are married together, or their brother and sister. Put it whatever metaphor you like, but you like, but they go together. Authority and love go together. They cannot be one without the other. Do not despise the God-given authority of the father and the mother. It's a gift to fathers and mothers. They are per- uh, fathers and mothers are perfectly designed to wield both the cup of love and the rod of discipline. And let me tell you, young parents, if you have to spank your children, do it. And, the, and if you do it and they feel it and they don't like it, you won't have to do it very much. I had a friend I worked with one time. He had this really bad... I mean, this kid was such a brat. He gave them such a hard time. He was like eight years old. And, um, and I said, well, I, I spanked my sons. Don't you do that? And he said, he said to me, Danny, your son's two years old. If you're spanking him already, think how bad that's going to be when he's older. And I'm like, I think you got it backwards, <laughs> you know? And the next time I talked to the guy, he said, yeah, we, we put our son in his room and he had this big ball machine, this big, you know, the, the glass globe, and he bashed his head. So to get their attention, to come in, I said, he's eight years old. Maybe he should have spanked him when he was two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try God's method and you Friends, we, don't, we didn't have all the answers as a young church. We didn't have all the ministries. We didn't have all the things. <laughs> My kids are going to say that forever now. We're a church. <laughs> We're a church in progress. <laughs> hey, I didn't give permission for that. I just want you to know. We didn't have all the things. We, we had no building for 18 years. You know service every few months or so we'd rent a tent and we'd put it in back of my house i got pictures of all this stuff and uh we'd all come and we'd have music and we'd have dinner and we'd have feasts and we'd have a speaker and everyone would come in from playing volleyball in the yard and we'd sit down and we had a great number of different speakers that came out there's pictures of you guys there at one of these 
And we, you do what you can when you don't have your own building. Now we can branch out. We have all sorts of opportunities. And so we chose to do certain things because we were equipped to do certain things and we were unequipped to do other things. We did what we were good at. And we trust the rest will come in time as our spiritual gifts and our personal zeal increased. Friends, if you have ideas for expanding ministries into teaching ministries or Sunday school ministries, I'm much interested in your suggestions, very much so. You'll find me very unauthoritarian in these things. But I'm even more interested in vision for other services and ministries, not just a naked idea. I urge you to remember, however, this thing. A plan is always better than a dream. Come with a plan. Come with a plan to facilitate your vision. And that'll be even better. And so, as I said, we focused on certain things because we were good at them and not other things because we were not so equipped at the time. But in all things, I can tell you that this church is entirely built upon the Word of God and the love of the saints. That is definitely here among us. We can't even get people to stop hugging and kissing and saying hello down in the morning. And I'm not mad about that. Me that way. That's not a chastisement. I, I think it's good. They just, people are just so glad to see one another. The people of God, you might as well feel that way because you're going to be in a, in a church of people. You know? I mean, different people come in. Johnny out there hugging everybody. Rick's there shaking everybody's hands. Tammy, like, I mean, I look up, she's like this, I was thinking about this pretty blonde octopus. <laughs> she's got, the tentacles are out. She's hugging Dave. She's hugging Dwayne. I look over, she's hugging Karen, else, you know, uh, and I'm thinking, that's good. Tammy knows her brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh I've seen too many upstart ministry efforts expire from lack of worse, continue as a trite and uninspired cuction cups are there. And <laughs> quiver is full of them, is full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but speak with their enemies in the gate. What do you think that's talking about, speak with their enemies? What's the prophet saying here? Our sons and daughters, for just... Jesus loves me, this I know type of Christians, but they ought to be Joshua types of Christians. Confront the enemy and speak to him. Come out eventually. I needed to get it out there because I had to see how the kids would end up. I didn't want to be I didn't want to be one of those guys that says, Well, I got this is what I think you should do. You know, uh, as the child psychologists are always doing. Um but it's finally out there. Guess who read it? Jonathan read it. And it, Jonathan, he just had a baby. That Jonathan? And um, he read the book. It's called Raising Adults. And it's Homer. We don't raise children. They're already children. You don't have to raise them. There they are. They're already children. It's our calling to raise up adults out of the raw material of children that God gives us. Right? And you know, we don't own our children. The state doesn't own them either. We own them more than they do. God owns them, and we're the stewards. Just like we're stewards of our money, of our property, and of our own souls. We're stewards of their souls. And it's a sacred ministry. I believe childhood is a blessed time of life. I anything. When my kids said something in baby talk, I didn't correct it. I left it. I knew it was only going to last a short time. So I wouldn't correct the fact that Joe called Bible studies buddy-duddies. And we, we still do that. Mommy, it's time for buddy-duddies. Um, <laughs> Daniels was, um, uh, he's going to go into the other room. He would called it the Avun. So I say, Mom, let's go into the Avun. I still say these things. You know, we drink soda water, beverage in our house. You remember this? Daniel couldn't say soda. He called it doula. And so one day we walked down the aisle in the grocery store. I'll never forget. Dan I said, Daniel, let's go down the aisle and get some doula. It's not doula. <laughs> and he fixed me. But um, 
Socrates said, there's eternal human appeal in finding teacher wrong. You'll find that somewhere. Um, no, I believe childhood's a good time, and kids should be blessed as children. One writer wrote it this way, we could never have loved the earth so well if we had had no childhood in it. And whenever I think of that, I think of how many times as an adult have you laid down on the grass and looked at the clouds like you did when you were a kid? Maybe we ought to all go out today and do that. No, I have many fond memories of my own childhood and my children's experiences, and I believe children are best raised in two-parent homes. There, there it is, I said it. Best raised. And say it's the only way. I think that's the best way. It's God's way. And by the way, I have to add this. In two-parent homes where one parent is a man and the other parent is a woman, and hopefully married, in a covenant relationship before God, they should be reared in childhood innocence and wonder, not with all the problems of the world put at their feet. The goal, however, is wise and profitable adulthood. These are the Joshua types, friends. Joshua learned at the he learned how to think, how to lead. He learned how and who to fight and what was worth fighting for. You don't have to pick every fight. If you pick it and tend to win it. He was not ashamed of his faith. It was his emblem and his badge and the power of his voice. And he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He just spoke for his house. He didn't ask his wife's permission or his children's permission. We raised Joshua types of men in the image of God in our church. And so Paul writes this very thing, and I close with this. This blessed transition that's all too often a forgotten rite of passage in our age. He said we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. But by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would build godly structures in a godly church and rear godly offspring in your sight. Father, we pray that we'll raise them up in the love and admonition of Jesus Christ. And so we pray in his name. Amen.